I invite you now to listen once more to God's holy and er inerrant word from Psalm 58. It's printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along as we go. Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the death adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. O Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts might be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For six years now, <clears throat> we've been moving consecutively through the Psalms um, for three months each summer. And of course, when you go one by one uh, through the Psalter, you end up preaching on Psalms that you probably wouldn't choose if you um, were just picking your favorites um, to read or study or preach. And I think Psalm 58 probably fits into that category. It's probably one of those that we wouldn't pick on our own. Psalm 58 is one of the most explicitly bold and even, in a sense, violent uh, and of all the psalms in its petitions to God. Its image is strong, the metaphors, the pictures the psalmist uses. Uh, for modern people like ourselves, it may feel a bit unsettling. I don't know how you feel having uh, prayed that psalm a few minutes ago and heard it again just now, read it on the back of your order of worship. It might feel a bit unsettling to pray or be instructed to pray for God to break the teeth of the wicked, to tear out their fangs, to make them like snails that dissolve into slime, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun to anticipate the joy the righteous will rejoice at the vengeance the psalmist says to anticipate the joy of the righteous at the promised vengeance of God 
the psalm might be unsettling. But, friends, what I want you to see is that the scriptures not only give you license to pray in this way to God regarding the judgment of evil, the scriptures actually instruct us, command us to pray like this. And that's an important distinction, right? The, the, the Psalms aren't just there to show us all the ways we might pray if we wanted to pray this way, if we felt about things as the psalmist does. We, we could use these words if we wanted to. No, the Psalms are given to us by the Spirit to train us how to pray, to expand our vision for prayer beyond what we might prefer or default to, to teach us what it is that we ought to pray for as we embrace our union with Jesus and are conformed to his image by the power of the Spirit, our Lord Jesus certainly prays all of the Psalms. Not one is left out as he prays them at the right hand of his Father. And clearly praying for God to judge the world, I'm sorry, to judge the wicked, is something that the Spirit wants us to pray for. The Lord wants you to pray in this way, friends. Beloved, this is, a, this is a fundamental part of what it means for you to be pious and holy and like Jesus. To pray for God's judgment and earnestly desire for it to come soon. To yearn for it. This theme of asking God to come and judge the wicked it's not only present here in Psalm 58, of course. It's all over the Psalter, all over the place. It's put more strongly here, more acutely here perhaps, but this theme is everywhere. Asking for the justice of God is one of the most dominant themes of the Psalms as a whole. And it's not just the Psalms. In Revelation we find that, that the souls of the redeemed after being made perfect in holiness, they, after they go into heaven, that the souls of the redeemed, perfectly holy, still cry out for the vengeance of God. John tells us in Revelation chapter 6 that when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. And they cried out with a loud voice. And John says, this is what they said. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? John says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The saints in heaven, friends, say to the Lord, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? Beloved, the reality is that none of us know how to pray left simply to our own wisdom and instincts. We have to learn how to pray. In fact, through the span of our lives as Christians, However many years the Lord gives us, this is one of the most fundamental spiritual callings and tasks that we have to learn to pray. Just to learn how to pray. 
I spent 40 years personally learning how to pray. I've got a long way to go still. And so do you. To learn how to pray not only according to our own wisdom and desires, but according to the wisdom and desires of God. And and make no mistake, there's a deep connection between desire and prayer. We pray most for those things that we want most. And as the Lord, by His Spirit and His Scriptures, teaches us to pray, we learn to orient our desires in new and better ways. Our desires change and mature and become more like His. And one of the most fundamental things that the Psalms and indeed the Scriptures as the whole teach us to desire and to pray for is the justice, the in-breaking judgment of God that comes from the outside and intervenes in the world. Let's look at that this morning in our psalm. This psalm, Psalm 58, begins not with an address of God, notice that in the first two verses, but a direct confrontation with the wicked themselves. The psalmist begins by addressing them. He writes, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal violence on earth. He is calling out these people, these rulers. He is addressing them and saying, you are false Judges, false rulers. You see, by gods, the psalmist here is not talking to false deities like Baal. No, he's addressing human rulers. The Hebrew word alim is probably better translated as the ESV has it in its footnote. You mighty lords. Rightly understood, understanding who this psalm is is addressing here in the first part of it is crucial for seeing its overall argument. You see that the wicked in Psalm 58 aren't just the generically wicked, right? Those who don't trust in Christ. They're those wicked who are in positions of power and authority and have used that power and authority to set themselves against God and to do violence and abuse and oppress the weak and innocent and righteous. As we hear in verse 1, the the, the wicked in this psalm are those who fail to judge rightly. They have been given the power of judgment by God, but they abuse that power. Indeed, as verse 2 says, they deliberately plan evil in their hearts. And with their hands, they deal out violence to those who are under their thumbs. Now, the person that fits this description is anyone who uses their authority to abuse and oppress. That could be on a a magnificent scale or on a very small scale. It might be a a dictator that we've all heard of. It might be a president, the ruler of a nation. It might be a warlord, a, 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 a general. But it might also be a teacher or a boss or a pastor, or a police officer, or a parent. It could be any of those. 
If you've suffered under the power of someone else, under the power used to abuse and harm rather than protect and nourish, and I know that many of you have experienced that, you know how terrible that can be, the helplessness of that situation. If that has been your experience, beloved, or if you know those who have experienced that kind of thing, it's important for you to see here that the scriptures take your suffering, your experiences, incredibly seriously. That injustice matters. That injustice is not unseen by God. And one of the Bible's most fundamental claims from beginning to end is that those who abuse their authority, those who use violence and power to oppress, will be held to account by someone greater than them. In verses 3 to 5, the psalmist further describes these wicked oppressors that he is calling out and calling for God to judge. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And surely deceit goes along with the abuse of power and authority. Always there is deceit. There is cover-up. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or of the cunning enchanter. You see, the image of the wicked oppressor here is that he is like an uncontrollable venomous snake, right? a coiled cobra that strikes, that he has intentionally made himself deaf to the instructions of God, the one who he should listen to, the one who should rule over him. And he strikes out like that cobra at those under his rule. The wicked oppressor is like the deaf adder Why is he deaf? Because he stops his ear, the psalmist says. And that connection should remind us of something, perhaps of Acts chapter 7, where Luke tells us that the Jewish authorities, after hearing Stephen's sermon, stopped up their ears, refused to listen any longer as they rushed at him and picked up stones and crushed his head. This hardening of the heart is a crucial piece of the portrait of this psalm to understand who it is that the psalm is describing, what this wicked person is like. This is not just, uh, the psalmist is not just talking about flawed, imperfect human beings, right? The psalmist is talking about those persons who refuse to repent, who refuse to listen and continue in their way of violence and abuse and oppression. And the the image of a serpent is meaningful here, of course, right? A person who shuts his ears to God and uses his power to harm or destroy those under his rule with his own selfish end, who speaks lies even as he commits acts of violence, he has become like Satan himself. This is a satanic image that the psalmist uses here. It's no accident that it's a serpent. But what is to be done about the wicked? 
about those who have become like Satan in their abuse of power and authority? Are we able to control this kind of problem, this wickedness in our own strength? Can we in our own might bring full justice and solve the problem of human evil? No, friends. Not ultimately. It doesn't mean we shouldn't act for justice and work for it. Certainly the scriptures teach us that. But the problem of human wickedness, of violence and evil of those in power, it's an ancient one. It's as old as Cain taking his brother into the field. And in verses 6 to 9, notice what happens. The first five verses, the psalmist has described the problem. And now he begins to point toward the solution, the only solution that exists. And for the first time in the psalm, in verse 6, he addresses the living God. He says, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the the fangs of the serpent. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, he says. Let them vanish like the water that runs away. Right? Let, Let it be like water in the sun that is soaked up. Let that let that, that their power be like that. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be ineffectual, impotent. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Let them be as weak as that kind of animal. Let them be like the stillborn child who never sees the sun who never comes into the world at all. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he, that is God, sweep them away. You see, one of the most profound things about the scriptures, friends, is their realism. The scriptures never minimize or ignore the innocent suffering that exists because of wickedness in this world. And the intensity of the language in these petitions matches the intensity of our problem, the horror of evil. These verses teach us that real human evil exists in this world. It does. And they teach us also that Those who use violence and deceit to destroy and enslave and abuse those under their power, they don't just need a little medication, right? A a little rebuke, mild rebuke. They don't need just a, a little, you know, rehabilitation. No, the solution for human evil, the solution for suffering at the hands of evil men is for those who are evil to be judged. By God, to be put down by him for their power to be destroyed. Break the teeth of the serpent, the psalmist says. Tear out the fangs of the lion. Blunt his arrows. Take his power away. Let him be like a snail that dies in the sun or a child that dies in the womb. For those who have innocently suffered abuse and harm, for those who have lost loved ones to violence, for those whose homes and lives have been destroyed by the plans of wicked men. 
This kind of language, friends, is not embarrassing. It is not overwrought. It is not hyperbole. No, for those who have suffered, truly suffered, at the hands of wicked, evil, powerful men, the language, is, the language here in verses 6 to 9 is empowering in the deepest sense possible because it accurately describes how God must respond to human evil if God is to be actually righteous and holy. These are the kinds of things he must do. If God is righteous, then God must be judge. There is no other answer to the problem of suffering and evil and wickedness in this world than the righteous judgment of a holy God who has the authority and standing to do it. And that's just what we read about in verses 10 to 11 as the psalmist writes with what can only be described as delight and anticipation. He is yearning like the saints in heaven for the vengeance and judgment of God. He says, the righteous will rejoice. Right? Not the righteous will avert his eyes or the righteous will shrug his shoulders. The righteous will rejoice, he says, when he sees the vengeance. The vengeance of God, we should understand. He, that is the righteous, will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And then, the psalmist says, then all will know, mankind as a whole will say, there is, surely, we understand now, a reward for the righteous. We understand now that there is a God who judges on earth. Beloved, I hope that you aren't embarrassed by these last verses, particularly verse 10. I hope you aren't. I hope there's no part of you that wishes that these verses weren't in the Bible because they're tasteless or they're offensive. No, beloved, this is what we need. This is what we need if we are actually to do what Jesus tells us to do, if we are to love our enemies and not be tempted to take vengeance ourselves upon those who have wronged us. The only way to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us is by anticipating and longing for and hoping for and trusting in the vengeance of someone else. The vengeance of God. The righteous and holy judgment that only God is righteous and holy enough to administer. Right? Make no mistake, if you know the evil of man, if you have had some sense of it in your lives from your own personal experience or from your just knowledge of the world and history, if you truly see it, if you don't shut your eyes to the wickedness that humankind is capable of and perpetrates on a daily, hourly basis, when those who are in power use that power to abuse or to rape or to enslave or to kill or to steal or to destroy, if you truly see those things, then you will have no problem saying with this psalm, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. 
I want to close this morning by reading to you from a section from the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1561, roughly a century before our Westminster Confession. Unlike Westminster, the Belgic Confession was written during a time when the Protestant Reformation was still very much being violently opposed by those who were in power. Indeed, its primary author, Guido de Bray, a Dutch pastor and theologian, was publicly executed by hanging by the Roman Catholic Church uh, for his faith just six years after he wrote the Confession. If you've never read the Belgic Confession, I'd commend it to you. It's a, a wonderful articulation of Protestant conviction and belief forged in a time of persecution. Now, for years, one of the portions of this confession that has fascinated me is the last section of that work, which focuses on the last judgment, the judgment of God. And to be clear, this psalm is 58. It's, it's not only about the last judgment. Surely the psalmist is asking for God to intervene in history now, even as he did in events like 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. But it also looks forward to the last and final judgment. And what I find most interesting about the confession here as it discusses the last judgment is it doesn't only focus on what we believe will take place on that day, but also the joy and satisfaction and triumph that the last judgment will provide for those who belong to Christ. Here's what it says. Listen. Finally, they say, we believe, this is at the end of a, the entire confession, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven corporally and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty to, to declare himself judge of the living and the dead. And then all men will personally appear before this great judge. This is what we believe, friends. This is what the Bible teaches. Both men and women and children. All that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, then the books, that is to say, the consciences, shall be opened, and the dead judged according to what they have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all men shall give an account of every idle word they have spoken, which the world counts only as amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore, the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and the ungodly. They don't want to hear it. But, the confession says, it is most desirable and comforting. Desirable and comforting to the righteous and to the elect. Because then, at the judgment, their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked. But the faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. And all tears shall be wiped from their eyes. And I love this part. And their cause, that is the cause of the righteous, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, 
will then be known to all to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with the most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And there the confession ends. There is so much injustice in this world that has been never been dealt with, friends. If you think about the history of the human race, all the abuse, all the harm, all the violence that has been perpetrated by the wicked and powerful, how, many, how much of that injustice, how many of those injustices have ever been dealt with, have ever even been acknowledged, even in a flawed manner, in, a, in an initial manner? The percentage is small, very small. Injustice is our reality in this life because of human sin. But beloved, whatever your suffering, whatever the suffering of the world at the hands of evil men that you have observed or witnessed, I promise you this, the Lord Jesus promises you this, the judgment of the living God is coming. The judgment of God will come. Even now, the Lord Jesus, the judge of all, is at the door. And he will not come as he did the first time in weakness, in hiddenness. No, he comes. Friends, he comes with a sword in his hand and his robe dipped in blood. That is the picture that the scriptures give. And every wrong will be settled when he appears. Not one will be left out. No act of wickedness, no matter how small, no matter how terrible, will be left unaccounted for under his sight. And we who belong to Jesus, friends, who belong to this Jesus who comes as judge, we rejoice and we ardently desire to see the judgment of our God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we pray indeed that you would give us faith to trust in your goodness even in the midst of the injustice of this world and to ardently desire and look forward to and pray for your judgment upon evil. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.